The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with bracing for Jay Powell. Stocks in a bit of a holding pattern ahead of the Fed chairman's speech at Jackson Hole. We'll tell you how you should be positioning ahead of his comments. That's coming up. Also, Wall Street coming off an ugly session yesterday with the Dow doing something for the first time since March as tech failed to keep the markets afloat. And forget about a rough session. How about a rough decade? Check on shares of Disney and what it is reportedly doing with Amazon and ESPN. Plus, Zillow solution for struggling first-time home buyers. And then later in the show, former President Trump returns to the platform formerly known as Twitter on a very historic day. It's the first time in two years the former president has been on X. It is Friday, August the 25th, 2023, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Happy Friday. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's get you ready to start this day. As always, we kick off the hour with the check on U.S. stock futures after a bit of a rough session for stocks yesterday. The Dow posting its worst day since March. The S&P and the Nasdaq, they post their worst day since August the 2nd. Taking a look at futures in the green across the board. So just a short time ago, the Nasdaq was actually fractionally lower. Right now, it looks like the Dow would open up just around 70 points higher. So all of this ahead of Fed Chairman Jay Powell's keynote address in Jackson Hole, Wyoming at 10 a.m. Eastern time today. And if recent years, if there are any indication, investors, they should be bracing for some very wild stock swings. Last year alone, the S&P lost more than 3% in a single day after Powell struck a more hawkish tone than expected Similar story for 2019. And as, a bank, and as Bank of America notes, with U.S. economic data showing continued strength, policymakers are likely concerned inflation could re-accelerate in the coming months. Ahead of that, we're checking the bond market. Taking a look at yields right now, the benchmark 10-year at 4.25, trading pretty close to the highest levels since 2007. The two-year note, that's back above a 5% yield. Important to note, the two-year, 10-year spread, it is actually narrowing in recent weeks. Uh, we're also looking at energy this morning, as always, begin with oil, WTI, the U.S. benchmark again, back below 80. Oh, actually, just above 80 bucks a barrel, moving higher in the pre-market right now at $80.06, up one and a quarter percent. Brent crude, similar story, up one and a quarter percent, coming into 84.42. Natural gas, a bit more muted, up just about a half a percent. So that's the picture in the U.S. Let's see how Europe is shaping up as its trading day gets underway. Our Germana Bersetti, live in our London newsroom with much more on the early action. Germana. Good morning, Frank. Well, Asian markets took their cue from U.S. stock markets, uh, all of them trading in the red towards the end of the session. The Shanghai Composite down six-tenths of a percent, clearly still in correction territory. Hang Seng also down 1.4. Some of the key tech names in this space have come under selling pressure. The Nikkei also in focus, down more than 2% today. Again, seeing a lower price action in technology and retail stocks. 
and the likes of SoftBank also dropping 3.1%. This despite slightly lower than expected Tokyo core inflation prints coming through. Over here in Europe, though, we are bucking the trend. And you can see that actually it's a full sweep of green across all of these indices. Broad-based gains. The FTSE 100 up about three-tenths of a percent. You were just talking about what's been happening with energy prices. Well, whenever that happens, we tend to get a bit of a boost for the FTSE 100, given so many of the energy companies are domiciled in the UK. So miners and energy names are giving a boost to the UK index. Zetradax also very much in focus today. That index up three-tenths of a percent, even though we did get some more disappointing numbers. Today, we had the EFO numbers, the business morale numbers, come in disappointing relative to expectations. This is the fourth decline in a month. So alongside those PMI numbers that we had on Wednesday, the outlook is not looking so pretty for the Eurozone economy. Then finally, the Kekarant in France also up about six-tenths of a percent. But it focused on luxury names today. The, uh, the brand Watches of Switzerland, which is actually denominated in FTSE 250, not in FTSE 100, is down 30%. That is dragging down some of the luxury names today in Europe. Frank. All right, Germana, thank you very much. Our Germana Brissetti live in our London newsroom. All right, turning our attention back to Wall Street. August is once again living up to its rep reputation as a dismal month for stocks. The S&P is down 4.6% on pace to snap a five-month winning streak and post its worst performance since December. The Nasdaq also set for its worst month since December, down more than 6%. The Dow's lost more than 4% this month. So historically, over the past 10 years, the S&P, it's averaged a gain of just 0.1% in August. It's the third worst month for the index. And if you go back further, over 20 years, the index has averaged a monthly loss of 0.1%. So joining me now is Ryan Dietrich, chief investment strategist at the Carson Group. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Frank. Thank you for having me. All right. So as we just kind of detailed right there, August, a very difficult month for investors. How do you see Jay Powell in his speech coming up at 10 a.m. Eastern impacting the momentum we've seen so far this month? Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of stole a little thunder there. I mean, to see some weakness in August, I want to start here, Frank, is not abnormal. You know, when you're up at least 17 and a half percent for the year going into the normally weak month of August, like we were this year. August is only been higher three of the last 11 times with some big pullbacks. So we were open to the idea of some volatility in August, and we're seeing it. Now, you talk about today, you know, I think he's just going to hit it down the middle. We don't think he's going to do too much here. I mean, let's not forget, in 2020, came off a little dovish, sparked a big rally. We all remember last year, came off wildly more hawkish than expected. That obviously led to a big sell-off into the middle of October. So we've had some moves, obviously, after Jackson Hole. We're not so sure this time's going to be different. The thing I want to see, though, I mean, the economic data, at least what we're seeing, looks pretty strong, right? Those Fed minutes recently said the economy was slowing. Yeah, you look at industrial production, you know, retail sales. I mean, there are different things in the economy are actually improving, Frank. So I'm anxious to see his opinion of the economy. We don't think it's as weak as they said it was back in those minutes. All right. I want to get your opinion on bonds right now. Look at the 10-year highest yep. level since 2007, two-year at its highest level since March, given a lot of competition when it comes to equities. You're very bullish on the markets, especially small caps. you got to explain that one because these are some of the most – Interest, yep. interest rate sensitive stocks in the market. So why small caps now? Yeah, you're right. I mean, why are yields higher, at least on the long end? Again, our opinion is it's because the economy is strengthening, right? So we're seeing that uh, with a lot of the data. You look at inflation overall, I mean, you know, 
41% of it is shelter. We've talked a lot about it on this network before. Shelter looks like it's slowing down. So parts of inflation clearly are coming down. So that gets to the next level of why do we like small caps? Honestly, cyclicals here, Frank, because we don't see a recession. Historically, small caps actually do okay when yields are going higher, when the economy is strong. So we just don't see a recession. We think those cyclical areas with small caps are nice. Small caps had a big rally. They've pulled back, I'm aware, lately. And you could say, well, maybe it's because yields are higher, maybe because they just had a big rally the last couple of months. Right back, Russell 2 is right about that 200 days. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty tasty level, we think, for small caps to find some, uh, some buyers here. All right. So, Ryan, you're clearly a, a glass half full type of person. You're pretty optimistic. You say a little volatility, but you're still bullish. So explain mm-hmm. the sell off yesterday. We saw NVIDIA blowout report. Yeah. Huge. Big rally in the pre-market and after the earnings report. And then it only closed a dime higher. Yeah. What's the rest of the market seeing that you're not seeing? Yeah, well, again, I mean, NVIDIA, as everybody knows, up over 200% for the year. I mean, those earnings and the guidance they gave was spectacular. But you're right. It's all about how does the market react to it. Our take is this. In our Meteor Outlook, we released it, you know, gee, I don't know, six, seven weeks ago at this point, Frank. We, we said, listen, we're a little more neutral tech. Tech said it's amazing run. Again, that that movement from tech into some of the cyclical names, some of the value names. I mean, energy. Right. Energy is obviously, uh, you mentioned crude oil is up a little bit this morning, right? I right. mean, those are some of the areas we think things, the baton is going to be passed to. And again, Frank, I think anyone when you get up this early, you might as well be a glass, uh, you know, an optimistic guy, right? It's yeah. pretty early. So I think we're a little more optimistic. And again, just that rotation is perfectly normal. And we think it'll play out the second half of this year. You know, good point about energy. As we mentioned just a short time ago, uh, oil up almost one and a half percent right now. You know, I think the better metaphor is the coffee cup is half full at this hour. There we go. Ryan Dietrich, <laughs> it is great to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate it. All right. Let's get a check on this morning's top corporate stories. We have our Contessa Brewer here with those. Contessa, happy Friday and good morning. Frank, good Friday to you. And Amazon reportedly in early talks with Disney about a streaming version of ESPN that could cost between 20 and 35 bucks a month. According to the information, along with helping Disney expand distribution, Amazon may also be set to take a minority stake in the brand. ESPN getting a lot of attention here. Shares of Disney set to open, though, at their lowest level in nearly nine years. But there you can see uh, up about half a percent in the extended trade. Shares of Hawaiian Electric sinking in the pre-market. The company says it is suspending its dividend starting in the third quarter. It's trying to shore up cash and looking to rebuild following the state's devastating wildfires. The utility is now also the target of a new lawsuit brought by Maui County, alleging Hawaiian Electric failed to shut off power despite exceptionally high winds and dry conditions. And the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration reportedly is set to conclude its two-year investigation into Tesla's autopilot and could make an announcement in the coming days. The regulator is probing the driverless tech after identifying more than a dozen crashes involving Tesla on autopilot and whether the cars adequately ensure that drivers are paying attention while the system is activated. Those shares up to tenths of a percent in the early morning pre-market trade. Frank. All right, Contessa, thank you very much. We'll see you a little bit later in the show. All right, we have a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, China unveils even more stimulus measures and one finally directed squarely at consumers. Plus, we have your big money movers in the surge and buy now, pay later transactions. And then later, much more on Jay Powell and what our resident Fed whisperer, Gina Smiley, thinks he will tell investors later today. You don't want to miss that one. We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. China and the U.S. appearing to want to overcome the recent wave of blacklist investment bans, export curbs and tariffs that are holding back one of the most valuable trading partnerships in the entire world. To do that, the U.S. is looking at some good old fashioned diplomacy. Our Eunice Yoon joins us now from Beijing with much more on this story. Eunice. Thanks, Frank. Well, President Biden is sending his fourth senior official to China since mid-June. Uh, this Sunday, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is expected to arrive here for four days of meetings with Chinese government officials as well as U.S. business leaders, both here in Beijing as well as Shanghai. Now, the expectation is that she, like other U.S. officials, is going to attempt to drive home a message that uh, the recent curbs by the U.S. on American investment in Chinese companies is going to be narrowly focused and not meant to decouple or hold China's progress back economically. On its part, the Chinese government has responded, saying that it's looking forward to in-depth discussions on trade and economics. Uh, the Commerce Ministry had said that it hopes to see practical cooperation, and that's been fueling speculation that there could be uh, some working group uh, decided upon on export controls at the end of this trip. Uh, state media has also uh, described the invite by her counterpart at the Commerce Ministry as a show of Chinese goodwill. Now, I was able to speak to some executives from business groups here in Beijing as well as in Shanghai. And for the most part, they said that they are really hoping that this meeting is going to help improve the communication between the governments, but also provide more transparency and clarity on policy when it comes to foreign investment for both sides. Frank? So, Eunice, we got some big news out of Beijing this morning, unveiling new rules for consumers to help boost its struggling real estate sector. What can you tell us about this? And really, how important is a healthy Chinese consumer to the overall trade picture between the U.S. and China? Well, it's, it's very important, uh, but for these specific regulations, uh, the authorities have decided to ease mortgage rules to essentially make it easier to classify uh, more people as new home buyers. And in, because of that, they'd be able to um, enjoy more tax rebates. And the authorities have also tried to expand those tax rebates for more people. Now, it's not clear, though, um, exactly how much of an impact this administrative tweaking will really have on the overall uh, purchasing and stimulation of the property sector because of the falling prices, because there are a lot of people worried about the job market and also the direction of the economy. Interesting. You know, home affordability, an issue there, an issue here, something we'll continue to watch. Eunice Yoon, live in Beijing. Great to see you as always. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, a blockbuster-sized casualty in the ongoing writer strike, crowning the richest NBA all-star ever, and Zillow's solution for struggling first-time homebuyers. Speaking of, your top trending stories are coming up right after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. It's time now for your big money movers. We're going to start with Nordstrom. Shares not fitting just right after sales came below pre-pandemic levels. The retailer also re reiterating its previous full-year outlook of a 4 to 6% revenue decline. This as it winds down stores in Canada, improves inventory management, supply chain efficiency, and looks to boost Nordstrom rack sales. Those shares down almost a half a percent. All right, Marvell Tech not feeling so marvelous. Shares tumbling despite an earnings beat and guidance coming in just slightly above expectations. The chipmaker says it expects sequential revenue growth to accelerate in the current quarter as it looks to benefit from AI and cloud infrastructure demand. Those shares down just about 4%. And shares of Ulta Beauty, they're sitting pretty. This following better than expected Q2 results and the beauty retailer raising its full-year forecast. Resilient demand for premium cosmetics and fragrances among higher-income consumers, really driving the beat. And also foot traffic at Ulta stores grew every month this year. Those shares up one and a quarter percent. All right, switching gears to the political world. For the first time in history, former president has a mugshot. It happened after former president Donald Trump surrendered to Georgia authorities facing charges. He tried to overturn that state's 2020 presidential election. NBC's Drew Petramu is live on Capitol Hill with the details. Drew, this was a historic day. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Thursday was yet another in a long list of firsts since former President Trump burst onto the political scene. But Trump remains defiant, even though he now faces nearly 100 felony charges in total. With a wave and a thumbs up, former President Trump boarding his private plane after a historic day in Atlanta that produced the first ever presidential mugshot. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. The former president surrendering himself to state police at the notorious Fulton County Jail, then being processed on 13 felony charges surrounding his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. Inside the jail, in addition to the mugshot, Trump was read his rights. And then the process was largely over and Donald Trump returned to his car and his motorcade left. It was a short proceeding and a fairly undramatic one, but for the fact that it even happened at all. Outside the jail, supporters and detractors adding to the circus-like atmosphere. Donald Trump is a rat. Calling him a rat, calling him a rat. Chanting and parading signs in front of the media. What's happening here um, in Fulton County is totally illegal. It's a travesty. Will you vote for him? Absolutely, 100%. Even with the legal challenges, even with Absolutely. the indictments? Yeah, because they're phony. Trump's grip on the Republican Party remains strong. While polls show a majority of Americans believe criminal charges against Trump are warranted, they also show his lead in the Republican primary is sizable and a hypothetical rematch with President Biden is neck and neck. Now, after leaving Georgia, Trump flew to his private club in Benminster, New Jersey. Overnight, he did a phone interview on a cable news program and posted to X, formerly known as Twitter. It was his first post of the platform in two and a half years and included his mugshot and the words, never surrender. Reporting from Capitol Hill, I'm Drew Petromel. Frank, back to you. Yeah, that last part on X was interesting, Drew. I want to ask you, uh, former President Trump was charged with 18 co-defendants. Do we know if everyone else has also surrendered? Well, several more co-defendants surrendered early this morning. That leaves right now just two co-defendants left to surrender. Of course, they have, according to the judge, until today at noon to do so, Frank. All right, Drew Petromu, live in D.C. Drew, thank you very much. All right, as we head to break here on Worldwide Exchange, we are watching shares of NVIDIA coming off a wild session 
After that blockbuster earnings beat yesterday, the stock opening up more than 6% higher before ending the day with a less than 1% gain, actually ending up just one dime higher than it started. All right, is that still enough to keep it in that? Ex- it is still enough to keep that in an exclusive trillion dollar club and on track for its third best year ever. Taking a look at shares this morning up just about 1% in the pre-market. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Much more Worldwide Exchange coming up after this. It's right around 5.30 a.m. in the New York City area, and there's still a lot more ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. Futures, they're trying to claw back some of yesterday's losses as investors brace for comments from Fed Chairman Jay Powell in Jackson Hole today. Also, Europe's new rules for big tech, they go into effect today, forcing companies like X, Meta, and TikTok to police content on their platforms or face steep fines. And digging into the state of black entrepreneurship in America, we speak with one venture capitalist looking to invest in change. It is Friday, August the 23rd, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Collin. Let's get you ready to start this day. As always, we're going to pick up a half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures, taking a look. We're seeing the futures move a bit higher this morning. Right now, it looks like the Dow would open up just about 85 points higher. We're also looking at the bond market ahead of Jackson Hole right now. Taking a look, as always, we start with the benchmark 10-year, 4.24. This is pretty close to its highest level since all the way back in 2007. Two-year, the yield back above 5% as well. And then energy, as always, we begin with oil, WTI, the U.S. benchmark right now, back above 80 bucks a barrel, up almost 1.5%. Similar story for Brent crude at about 84.60. Natural gas, more of a muted upside move, though, uh, up over just a half a percent. All three, though, moving higher from the time that we started the show. All right, turning our attention now to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and our top story of this morning, Fed officials gathering for this year's Economic Policy Symposium. The main event of the day, New comments from Fed Chairman Jay Powell on the future for rates, inflation, and the possibility of a soft landing. Speaking with CNBC yesterday, Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harper says the central bank has done enough and plans uh, to keep rates at the current levels, at least for the time being. Right now, I think that we've probably done enough because we have two things going on, right? Both the Fed funds rate increases. Mm -hmm. They are at a restrictive level, so let's keep them there for a while. And also, we are continuing to shrink our balance sheet. And that is, that is also removing accommodation. Important to note, Patrick Harker is a voting member of the FOMC. Let's talk more about what to expect with Gina Smilik, Federal Reserve and Economy Reporter at The New York Times, who is in Jackson Hole for this event. Gina, thanks for making some time to talk to us. Yeah, absolutely. It's 3.30 here, so you weren't competing <laughs> with much. Well, thanks for the early wake up. We certainly appreciate it. So I was just looking at the CME FedWatch tool. Right now, traders are pricing in an 80 percent chance of a pause. Um, Jay Powell speaking at 10 a.m. Eastern. The next meeting, 26 days away. What are you expecting? Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting one. Um, I think we are I think most economists you talk to will tell you that they are not expecting some huge signal out of J-PAL today, only because it is so many days until the next meeting. You know, they've got another jobs report. They've got another big inflation number. So he's not going to want to back the Fed into a corner where they have to do one thing or the other. That said, I think we're all going to be paying a lot of attention to what his tone sounds like. You know, is he still sort of warning like he did last year that the economy is going to be in for some pain before inflation comes down? Or 
does he take a slightly more optimistic stance? You know, does he sound a little bit more complacent in a world where inflation has come down pretty notably since last summer? And so I think the, you know, open question about what that tone is going to be, but it's going to be the thing to watch this morning. Yeah, tone is definitely the thing to watch. So last year when inflation was right around 9%, very hawkish, Jay Powell, um, very clear what the message was right now. So we actually just read your story that uh, published in the Times yesterday. The economist that you interviewed, there were several of them in your most recent story, said that Jay Powell will avoid saying anything close to quote unquote mission accomplished. Um, obviously, something like that has a lot of undertones there. But technically, aren't we actually pretty close to the so-called soft landing? Ah, you know, that is the million dollar question, but I don't actually think we're at a point where we can declare victory in any way at this stage. So inflation overall, the number that people are really fixating on here is 3.2%, which is where CPI inflation is down a lot from 9.1% last year. But I think that paints almost a misleadingly rosy picture, actually. I think if you look at core inflation, that number that strips out food and fuel prices because they bounce around a lot, that's much higher. It's like 4.7%. And so, you know, on on that basis, I think the Fed still has quite a lot of work to do to get inflation back to sort of that 2% steady run rate that it was pretty used to before the pandemic in which it tries to foster over time. And so, you know, we've, we do still have some, some progress left that we need to see. And, you know, there is a concern among some economists that that last couple of miles here could be the harder ones. All right. You are a resident Fed whisperer. You're there in Jackson Hole. Great article by you. Just looking at the history of Jackson Hole and the fact this is kind of a cozy situation for economists and people to come together, kind of off the grid, just kind of get together. So Jay Powell's speech, that's the headline, of course, 10 a.m. Eastern time. But what are the other conversations going on? Clearly, Patrick Harker, Harker is someone who feels like we've done enough. What are the other conversations down there? Yeah, you know, I think there are going to be two really interesting things to watch. I think the first is Christine Lagarde is going to be speaking today. She is the head of the ECB, as your watchers doubtless know. And so that speech is also going to be really interesting because inflation has not just been a U.S. phenomenon. It's really been something global. And the response to the high inflation has been quite similar, you know, world over. And so I think what she signals about whether the ECB is done or whether the ECB needs to do more, that could be very interesting. And then I think another thing that we're you know, hearing from Patrick Harker, we're hearing from everybody here, is just this sort of, you know, question about how do you know when you've done enough? You know, he's he was very clear on his interview with you all yesterday that the sort of this is a moment to sort of pause and wait and sort of try and figure out, look at the data coming in, try and assess what's happening next. Um, but I think, you know, around the world, we're going to be doing that for the next couple of months. Like what what are the markers uh, that make you feel good and make you feel confident that inflation is going to come down and you don't need to lift rates higher? Um, so I think okay. that's going to be a constant point of conversation. All right. So, Gina, futures are higher now, but we saw a sell off yesterday before the close, I guess, on Fed anticipation. People were just worried about what Jay Powell was going to say. So is this as big of an inflection point as a lot of people seem to think it is? As you mentioned, we have other inflation reports, jobs reports, other things coming up before the next Fed meeting. Yeah. You know, I think it's a I think we it is a somewhat open question. I think this could be the inflection point. I think that's certainly the case. We could be done raising interest rates. We could look back on this Jackson Hole speech and say, that was it. We were we were over at that point. Um, you know, there's also a world, though, in which all the economic data comes in strong. Inflation is making less progress than they were hoping. And it's not the inflection point. You either see a rate increase in, in September or you see one in November. You know, it's it, there, there are several more meetings this year, before three more meetings this year before the, the end of the Fed calendar year. And so, you know, I don't think I don't think we're 
at the point yet where we definitively know whether we're at that fork in the road. All right, Gina Smiley, always great to see you. Take a nap. It's 2.30 in the morning there. Thank you for the early wake up. We always appreciate your time and your insight. Have a great day. All right, CNBC will have full coverage of Jackson Hole this morning, including two first on CNBC interviews with Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester and Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby. Both should be very insightful. Make sure you don't miss them. All right, time now to get a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Our Contessa Brewer is back with those. Contessa, good morning again. Frank, we got to look at uh, JetBlue's plans if it can acquire low-cost carrier Spirit Airlines. JetBlue could raise fares on some routes by as much as 40 percent, according to the company's calculations that were made public in court filings earlier this week. The company's, of course, fighting lawsuits brought by consumers and another bought by the Justice Department. JetBlue says those estimates of fare hikes were not properly redacted in the filings, and now they're just being taken out of context. You can see shares off by a third of a percent in the pre-market. EV battery factory in Ohio run by General Motors and LG Energy Solutions says it will raise worker wages by an average of 25 percent after some lawmakers called out the joint venture for paying staff as little as $16 an hour. Ultium Cells said workers still have to ratify the interim wage increase that takes effect August 28th. And shares of Viasat are sinking once again after the company confirmed another one of its communication satellites is malfunctioning in orbit. Airbus, which manufactured the satellite along with Viasat, is assessing whether the satellite can be recovered for use. Sources tell CNBC odds of that are low. That's a (laughs) big oops. Frank? That's that's a pretty expensive oops. Contessa Brewer, always great to see you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. So August is Black Business Month, a time to celebrate the accomplishments of black entrepreneurs and acknowledge the challenges they face. Here's a look by the numbers. There are around 141,000 black-owned businesses in the U.S. That's approximately 2.5% of all U.S. businesses combined. U.S. black-owned businesses have revenues just over $141 billion, and they employ around 1.3 million workers. Increasing the amount of black-owned businesses in tech is one of the primary goals of the Open Opportunity Fund. First founded in June of 2020 and backed by SoftBank, the Open Opportunity Fund has invested $100 million in 75 black and Latino startups, also offering, also offering support and guidance to those founders. That includes 14 startups that are actively using artificial intelligence in their operations. In May of this year, a second fund was launched with a goal of $150 million to fund more black and brown companies. Joining me now, the chairman of the Open Opportunity Fund, Dr. Paul Judge. Paul, great to have you here. Hey, Frank, great to be here. So tell us about the Open Opportunity Fund. Uh, Right now, we've seen a a period of time where diverse companies are not getting a lot of VC funding. What's your goal right now and what is your focus? Absolutely. Look, blacks represent 12% of the U.S. population. Latinos, another 18%. So combined, 30% of the U.S. population, but they only receive 3% of venture capital funding. Right? It's off by an order of magnitude. And that gap means about $40 billion a year that's not going to these founders. Our view is there's great returns in alpha hiding in that overlooked population. And Opportunity Fund is about how do we find exceptional founders and companies and fund them and go find returns that others are overlooking. And it's working. The fund is delivering top quartile returns by investing in these founders. I want to talk about AI for a minute. Emerging tech, it looks like it's going to transform so many industries. You have 14 companies in your portfolio that have direct exposure to using AI. Um, I think some may even call them AI companies. How important is diversity as we see AI develop? It's, it's important on how you, you train data. It's important on 
how you, you cleanse that data, uh, do you have the right sampling of the world uh, when you're making decisions about facial recognition or what natural language means. Uh, but then also we have diverse founders that are just using AI to solve really interesting hard problems. For example, CityBlock uh, is delivering healthcare to overlooked and underserved communities. And they're using AI to actually look at medical notes and figure out what conditions are, are present in, in those patients. And so using AI to solve just different problems, whether it be companies like Flutterflow, it's two ex-Google engineers, black founders that are figuring out, you can just describe what website you want to build, and the AI will write the code for you and give you something that's ready to click and just go to the cloud. Really, interesting. So I wanna give you all your credit. You're a founder yourself. You also were part of the management team of a company that IPO, Barracuda Networks, back in 2013. Have you ever seen anything like what we're seeing when it comes to NVIDIA's GPU chips? So we had a CNBC story recently that said there's some startups that are actually going into debt to acquire those chips. Um, you support, you guide your companies. What are you telling them about these chips? What are they telling you about acquiring these chips to power their AI features? Yeah, we, we see this oftentimes when there's new infrastructure. Uh, we saw this uh, with, with blockchain and there wasn't enough nodes and it, it led to companies like QuickNode that we invested in. We saw this in early days of cloud. But what happens is there's not enough capacity. If you think about the large uh, cloud providers of Amazon and Microsoft and Google, they have to service their big Fortune 1000 companies and customers. And startups often can't get enough capacity right. or they're looking to be more efficient. If you're training a, a large language model or you're training a specialized vertical stack, that could be millions of dollars of your startup funding. So you're looking for access, but you're also looking for efficient costs. And it's led to companies that are, have specialized GPU stacks uh, to give that onboarding. So is there a way around this or do you, just, do you just have to go to NVIDIA right now and pay up? Because, uh, you know, we've had analysts come on here and say that NVIDIA has about 90 percent of the AI chip market. You, they, are, they have a, a really strong lead. Like they were early in deciding to repurpose their GPUs, right. as we know. And I mean, others are trying to catch up. I mean, ARM uh, is doing work there, right? We know this IPO is coming up and they have this market share in, in the smartphones, but they have chips that will be useful both at the edge for AI as well as within a data center. Okay. But for the next couple of years, I think that NVIDIA is going to really enjoy this lead that they have. So you got to pay to play, basically. That's what yeah. you're saying. Um, so you invest in companies. I want to talk to you something about valuation. It's been okay. a theme this whole year. So I want to really focus on the hyperscalers that have, you know, direct business with a lot of your portfolio companies. Let's talk Amazon, Microsoft, and Alphabet. Amazon, 62 times forward earnings. Microsoft, 30. Alphabet, 23. Are these, is this valuation as stretched as some people make it out to be or in your mind, because you know how important these services are for tech companies, they seem more appropriate? Look, I think those three, those, those big cloud providers, uh, look at the revenue for the cloud. They're doing between, what, 30 to $70 billion a year, uh, each of those cloud services, and it's not slowing down. Their large enterprise customers are still moving infrastructure to the cloud. Those cloud businesses alone, I think over the next few years, will represent the full market cap we're seeing of those companies right now, the $1 to $2 trillion market cap. And then you get almost for free kind of their traditional business, right? And Microsoft, the office applications and Amazon retail. And, uh, and so I think we uh, will see uh, those companies continue to grow into those valuations. Well, there you have from somebody that looks at the valuations of companies all the time. Dr. Paul Judge of the Open Opportunity Fund, thank you so much for being here. All right, thanks for having me. All right, all right coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, we've got some competition heating up in the luxury watch sector, sending shares of one watchmaker sinking overseas. We are back right after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet. We begin with Morgan Stanley upgrading Abercrombie & Fitch to equal weight with a price target of 51 bucks a share. The firm says Abercrombie's second quarter results, it lends more credibility to the retailer's turnaround plan that could sustain the company in the near term. Although Morgan remains a bit cautious on sustainability a bit further down the road. Shares of Abercrombie & Fitch up 2% right now. 
Piper Sandler initiating coverage on Western Alliance Bank Corp at overweight. It says Western Alliance has quickly restored growth in core deposits and continues to distance itself from the turmoil in the industry this spring. Taking a look at those shares, though, down just about a half a percent. All right, Jeffries also raising its price target on Ferrari. Ticker symbol race. What else would it be? From 275 to 300 euros per share, Jeffries says low and controlled exposure to China remains a key positive, but it does question the continued stretching of Ferrari's order books. It has a hold rating on that stock. Shares of Ferrari not moving right now. And it's time now for your global briefing. We're going to begin with new regulations from the EU Digital Service Act taking effect today. They require tech companies like Facebook, TikTok, and X, formerly known as Twitter, to monitor content posted on their platforms, this unprecedented legal crackdown, coming after an effort by the EU to protect kids and limit ads that use personal information to target users. Check out shares of Watches of Switzerland. They're tumbling more than 25% after Rolex struck a deal to buy watch retailer, uh, another watch retailer. The move will give Rolex more control over how its watches are sold. That's sparking concern. Sales could suffer at Watches of Switzerland, which is the UK's biggest Rolex retailer. And China looking to ease mortgage requirements that were previously limited to first-time homebuyers in a push to boost property sales. Under these rules, people who have had a mortgage in the past, they can now be considered a first-time homebuyer. This would allow them to purchase cheaper rates with lower down payments. All right, time now for our top trending stories. For those, we send it over one more time to Contessa. Contessa, I said, you know, happy Friday, but you're, you're here. It's like the old times. I know. You dismissed me. I did, I did not. Dis- <laughs> you, people you don't know. We me, used to sit by each other, so <laughs> we would have these kind of conversations yeah. at our desk. So go ahead. Okay, are you ready for this? Zillow, speaking of what we're doing on housing, Zillow's offering mortgage with a down payment of just 1% because it's trying to lure potential home buyers. The program is lower than Freddie Mac's current best of 3%. Zillow says, in addition to that, it's going to pay 2% of the down payment at closing. The move comes, of course, as mortgage rates here hit a 22-year high this week. Warner Brothers pushing the release of Dune Part 2 from November to March. The studio says the delay is because the stars can't go out and promote the movie because of the Hollywood actor strike. The sci-fi film will now open on March 15th. The first installment of Dune came out in 2021 during the pandemic, and it made more than $400 million at the global box office. But apparently they need the stars to be out there promoting it. Michael Jordan regarded, of course, as the greatest basketball player of all time. He's also the richest Jordan's sale of his majority stake in the Charlotte Hornets this month pushes his net worth to an estimated $3.5 billion, according to Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Aside from the Hornets, much of Jordan's wealth comes from his massively popular Jordan brand shoe and apparel line at Nike. Last year, that brand generated $5.1 billion in revenue, or more than 10% of Nike sales. But Frank, my question here was like, well, yeah, he's the richest bat. Who, who else would give him a run for the money? But according to, uh, you know, various reports and Bloomberg says LeBron James right now is worth one point five billion. So he's younger. Potentially he could out earn and be more valuable someday than Michael Jordan. And Steph Curry has this um, long term deal with Under Armour that could pay off dividends in the future. So we'll have to wait and see whether Jordan always retains the most valuable player title. Contessa, was it on purpose? You were being a bit controversial. You said, of course, Michael Jordan's the best player of all time, because a lot of people actually think LeBron's the best player. I I think Michael Jordan is the best, but there is some controversy. Um, If I say it on television, it must be true. (laughs) 
That's a, I'm stamping it right now. It's, a, it's official. Michael Jordan, according to Contessa Brewer, best ball player of all time. Great to see you. Have okay. a great weekend. Basketball. Yeah. All right. Bye. Have a good day. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today. But first, why Disney is talking with Amazon over a future ESPN streaming service. We'll be right back with that story and much more. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. We begin with former President Trump taking to X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, for the first time in two years, posting his first message just hours after he surrendered at an Atlanta jail yesterday. Trump posting this photo of himself, his mugshot, with the words, never surrender. Shares of Disney set to open at their lowest level in nearly nine years as investors' skepticism around the stock and CEO Bob Iger's turnaround plan seems to gain more traction. Those shares right now up about a half a percent in the pre-market. We're going to stick with Disney. Amazon is reportedly holding talks with a media giant about a streaming version of ESPN for between 24 and 35 bucks a month. According to the information, a partnership could see Amazon assisting in expanding distribution for the service and even possibly taking a minority stake in ESPN. AMC Entertainment said to cap off what's been a, a, just a wild week for trading after the company completed a 1 for 10 reverse stock split yesterday that boosted the stock price from $2 to $14 a share. This head of a planned conversion today for its preferred ape shares into common stock. Shares of Hawaiian Electric are sinking ahead of the open. The company says it is suspending its dividend to shore up cash reserves following the devastating wildfires and a new lawsuit from Maui County. It alleges the utility failed to shut off power despite exceptionally high winds and dry conditions. Those shares down just about 20% right now. And shares of a firm, they're popping in the pre-market. The buy now, pay later company topping estimates for its fiscal fourth quarter after transactions surged 25% from a year ago. A firm says it expects record revenue in the current quarter. Those shares up almost 9%. Here's what to watch today. The main event on Wall Street happening in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. As the Fed kicks off its two-day policy meeting with Chairman Jay Powell expected to speak at 10.05 Eastern time. CNBC will have full coverage of that event, including two first-on-CNBC interviews with Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester at 11.30 a.m. and Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby at 12.30 p.m. You don't want to miss either one of those. All right, taking a look at futures right now ahead of the summit. Right now in the green this morning, and we're seeing that trend continue right now. Off its highs, however, the Dow looks like it opened up about 64 points higher. The Nasdaq just fractionally higher. All of this ahead of the summit after a really negative session yesterday with the Dow posting its worst day since March. Joining me now with her thoughts on the trading day ahead is Mimi Duff, Managing Director at GenTrust. Mimi, good morning. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, so we know what the main event is. We're about four hours away from that. With that in mind, what is your WEX word of the day? Jackson Hole. Got to go with it. <laughs> that was an easy one. So I, I guess it's obvious, but why Jackson Hole? Why make that your word of the day? Well, I have a special connection to Jackson Hole myself, so I was waiting for that word of the day. I have to be honest. But, uh, but really, I think what we're going to we'll, we'll see at, um, at 10 o'clock, Jay Powell, I would expect him to reiterate um, his previous thoughts that, you know, the, we're not in the clear yet. We've come a long way in terms of improvements in inflation, but with various, uh, various figures in the 3 to 5 percent range, we're really not at the Fed's target, and it's too early to call a victory lap. 
And um, I think he'll continue to say every meeting's live, but I don't think he'll commit to anything at this meeting. And they already are in restrictive territory with funds at uh, five and a quarter to five and a half. So okay. it's a matter of they raise more or wait longer, but we do expect him to re reiterate that message. All right. So ahead of what a lot of people seem to think is a big inflection point, how are you positioned when it comes to equities? Does it change if we see a hawkish Jay Powell or a dovish Jay Powell? So we're, we're not going to react to what he says today. I'll tell you that. We are underweight in equities. We have a more cautious stance. We, um, we're neutral fixed income. We feel that the markets are really priced for this very narrow path to a perfect soft landing. And we think that with rates where they are in restrictive territory, um, we think that we're going to expect to see some slowing in the economy. All right, so you're expecting to see some slowing. With that in mind, uh, when you were here last time, you were really about tips, uh, Treasury inflation, protective securities. Inflation is definitely on the downtrend. Would you still advise you know, your clients to invest in tips? I know your clients are generally yep. high net worth individuals. That's right. So we are still invested in tips and we still like those. Uh, you know, one in, one in two year break even inflation is at one and a half and two percent. So the market is pricing inflation to just magically come down in the next couple of years. It was perfectly to target. And we think the inflation is going to be a, a bit stickier than that. Like if we look at the composition, we still have a lot of wage pressure. We still have housing pressures. And those are on Jay Powell's radar as well. So we we still continue to like tips. We think that inflation is going to be a, a bit longer to come down here. The easy work right. is in. All right. So yesterday we saw uh, NVIDIA pop after earnings and then it actually closed lower, I guess, on Fed concerns, only closed a dime higher. Um, are you are you changing any view when it comes to mega cap tech in light of that? Because it seems like investors were all about NVIDIA. Then they kind of were like, eh, we don't know because rates might be higher for longer. Yeah, it's very hard, in my opinion, to dissect the exact reason when the market goes down or up. I mean, I, I will say that, as I mentioned earlier, we're a bit underweight equities. Our portfolios, we're still long equities, fixed income, real assets. We believe in diversified portfolios. Okay. But I, I wouldn't back the, the large cap in particular. They've been the winners this year, as they you know. They certainly have. Mimi Duff, great to see you as always. Thank you very much. Taking a look at futures in the green across the board, off their highs, though. Right now, it looks like the Dow would open up about 65 points higher. But again, it is very early. we got Squawk Box coming up next. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.